What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. In 1942, the New York Times began running its now infamous crossword puzzle. And today, it's estimated that over 200,000 people engage with the puzzle each day. There is little doubt that people really like the challenge these puzzles provide as they grapple with clues and play with words. It's clear that doing crossword puzzles makes you think. But when we consider crossword puzzles and children's literacy, are there any benefits we can find there? The answer is yes. First and foremost, doing crossword puzzles can help children with spelling. Since it is essential in a crossword puzzle to spell things correctly, doing puzzles can help to reinforce spelling rules and conventions and also help children find understanding when these rules are different. The supportive help that other already revealed words give also help children to access spelling that might be complex or different than expected. Another great impact that doing crossword puzzles has is that they can help children build vocabulary. Many teachers use crossword puzzles to help students to work with vocabulary words in order to reinforce other exposure they have had through reading or listening. Using crossword puzzles to learn vocabulary is great since the word is often connected with a definition or meaning. Another great connection that crosswords can make to vocabulary learning is through an understanding of synonyms and antonyms. Many crossword puzzle clues use words that are different but mean the same thing as the word they are looking for, or in other words, a synonym. Sometimes clues guide players to the right word by giving them the opposite meaning, or the antonym. The connection of these clues can also increase children's vocabulary as they see other words and how they can also connect to the same or different meanings. So it is clear that there is literacy value in crossword puzzles. But in the end, their greatest benefit is they are just an easy way to have a little fun. So here at Rachel's World, we say that if you're looking for a simple activity that can boost literacy and engage the whole family with words, then why not check out a few crossword puzzles? In fiction, a successful character is one you can identify with, one you can believe in because he or she seems real. Good writers can pull this off, but how do they do it? The answer might lie in the matter of true empathy and compassion. Our first guest today, young adult author Martine Levitt, talks to Rachel about how she lives with her characters for a while to get to know them better. Martine is an award-winning author of books for young adults, with her most recent book being Calvin. Other titles include My Book of Life by Angel, Keturah and Lord Death, and Tom Finder. We'll also hear from one of Levitt's students. Madeline Dresden is a graduate student in English at BYU specializing in writing fiction. She recently took a class from Martine Levitt and was given the assignment to write a young adult novel. Get ready to hear Madeline's account of that experience. First, here's Rachel and Martine Levitt. We're visiting with Martine today. Welcome, Martine. Thank you. We are so excited today to talk to you a little bit about your work. So let's start kind of just at the beginning. Why did you become a writer? Oh, my goodness. Why did I become a writer? Well, um, my father was in the military, 
I'm pretty sure the story starts there. <laughs> and we moved a lot. And so I felt, I think I was kind of always the, the new kid. And sometimes we moved before I had a chance to make friends. And I think I really made friends with books and, um, and storytelling. Sometimes I would, I would write little stories and they, it felt like sort of rubbing a blankie against my face. I found them really comforting. <laughs> So that was kind of my beginning, and then I just, I just always kind of turned to writing for fun as I grew up. That's, that's part a, of the story. That's <laughs> a wonderful story. I, I love that it kind of alleviates the stress of life. Mm-hmm. I, I know that in your writing, you, you often write about these kind of hard topics. You, you address some yeah. real issues. So is that something you do now in your writing? Do you take these stressful issues and use your writing to help you kind of work through them? I, I, I think that there's always a personal connection between me and the story I'm writing. Where is my heart in here? I think that my first few books were maybe more about me. Then I sort of moved on and started to think about other people and some of the things that in the world that made me sad. Although I have to say, I don't always write about something. It's not like I pick a topic. I don't really write about topics. I write about, I write stories. I write about characters. And um, the words kind of lead me on a certain direction. And then I start to figure out what's going on and what could possibly be happening. But maybe give us a specific example, particularly maybe in your newest book, Calvin, where mm-hmm. you you had to wrestle with something particularly thorny. Oh, and, yeah. and how did you work it out? Well, Calvin was so much of a gift. I literally did wake, I write very early in the morning And I literally would wake up in the morning and just carry on from the next day. And it was one of those books that that came very close to to being all there. But there were lots of things that had to be worked out. One of the things my editor and I went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth on was the time element. I tend to not notice time. There's time warps all over my books, so I had to really to figure out how long it would take him to cross the lake. Um, Lake Erie in the winter, Lake Erie freezes sometimes in the winter, and he walks across Lake Erie in the winter as a pilgrimage to get Bill Watterson to draw another uh, comic. And that was a bit tricky for me because Calvin is very um, sort of unsettled about reality in general. He's sort of living in this place where time is not happening to him the same way it's happening to it would happen normally. On the other hand, the writer had to be extremely precise about how this would happen and, and you know, how the time it would take. And that's probably why it was such difficulty for me, because I was just inside Calvin, not really paying attention to these things. But I did at some point have to. Yeah, and that that's interesting about really paying attention to these details and really s- the author pays attention to so much more than actually makes it yeah. into the book. Right. So how do you make those decisions about what what to take out and what not to tell the reader e- even though you know it in your head? 
it is, a, I think, a struggle for most writers. At what point? So, for example, the book I'm working on right now is um, a historical novel. The Levitts in Canada had a wonderful tradition from the very first settlers here in Canada in the late 1800s. And they would all write a very brief life history before they passed away. And these were all gathered into a book. And I am stealing shamelessly from them to write my new historical novel, which is about the Mormons settling in southern Alberta. And um, you can imagine that I have hundreds of pages of details that I would just love to put in my story. But you have to be discriminating. What matters is the story and and the character. And so if it does not propel the story forward, then sadly it doesn't make it into the book. But maybe there'll be another book. I don't know. Well, let's let's see many, many more. That's that's what I'm looking forward to. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure visiting with you. I really appreciate you taking the time to to come on and and help us understand your process and and share your work with with our listeners. It's been such a pleasure. It's a real honor to be on BYU Radio. What what are some of the things that you have learned from Martine in this semester that you've taken the class? Well, we certainly learn a lot of things regarding craft, like how to make your characters likable, how to show up to the page every day. Uh, Those are very important things that we're learning. But I would say that some of my favorite takeaways from our class so far um, are things about how love is so important when you're writing a book. Love for your characters, love for your story, love for your readers, and love for language. And so we we do exercises with poetry, which, you know, Maybe at first thought you think, what does that have to do with fiction? But the best fiction is written poetically in a lot of ways. Um, so just not just craft, but also how to show up emotionally to the page has been a really good lesson for me. And she writes books that cover these, uh, what you're saying is love, but she's also visiting kind of tough topics and, and that kind of thing. Can you... Uh, talk a little bit more about that. Yes, in an address that she gave at BYU last year, she one of the things that I remembered most from her address was this idea that writers, kinda, and I'm just paraphrasing here, have a job to look into dark places and not look away. That is how you're going to understand people who are in difficult situations and tell their stories so that maybe someday they can find empathy and help. There's a power to stories in helping us to understand people and wanting to help them and wanting to be more compassionate. We can't really get there until we've somehow been in their shoes, even in a little way. And that's something that Martine Lovett stresses is if we're going to help people get into their shoes, into the shoes of these people who are in dark places, we have to first be able to look at where they are and not look away so that we can portray them and and do their stories justice. So did that... Uh, focus influence you and in the, in the young because you're required to re, to write a young adult novel, aren't you? In this yes. class, <laughs> in the class, in yes. the class. Wow, um, did that influence what you uh, chose to write about? It did. Um, I think there's a lot of debate and controversy about how dark stories should be told for young people um, in terms of. <laughs> 
maybe these topics are too dark for children and they shouldn't have to deal with um, these sorts of terrible themes. But Martins has been very good about allowing us to write about any stories that come to our mind and helping us to express them responsibly, um, to not shy away from dark things, but to express them in a way that is productive for young people. Um, just let's spend a few minutes on the creative process. How, For example, let's take your, your adult novel. What's the creative process? How do you get started? What's the process as you get into it? That type of thing. Sure. And this is something that's different for every author. And back in the Romantic period, you know, you had a muse who inspired you. And I think for me, things that happen to me inspire me. So whether it's something that has been on my mind a lot, or if maybe an image, something that I see in the world that inspires me to want to write about this situation or this person who's sitting on a park bench, or Maybe at one point I was, as a babysitter, I was just looking out into um, my neighbor's yard and saw water that was just sparkling. And it looked like winking honey. And for some reason that really inspired me. And I imagined someone rising out of that water, a girl, and I wanted to know her story. And so I project my imagination onto things that I'm seeing in the world. And that inspires me to delve into this person and find their story. So that's... That's one way that I get inspired. And it's really, it really is kind of organic for me. It isn't for everyone, but it is for me. Mm-hmm. So is there a lot of editing that goes on, and write and rewrite? And Yes. The, the saying is that writing is rewriting. <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah. Yes. So in my program, most of our writing classes are workshop-based. So instead of getting lots of lecture, what we're really doing is producing and getting feedback from our peers Martine's class is a little different in that we're only workshopping with her, so it's very personalized, which I have enjoyed because having one person's opinion who gets your vision can be more helpful than a room full of people who are struggling to understand your vision. So you really have to pick your community of writers very carefully. That's something that I've learned in this program. Not everyone is a good fit for a reader, and you're not a good fit as a writer for them, and that's perfectly acceptable. And you can't be afraid to, um, I guess, sort through your options and pick people who will be helpful and people that you can be helpful to as well. You do need revision and you do need feedback. So it's finding that balance between a helpful community and um, one that you can be a a productive part of. Well said. Well, it's been great to talk to you today. And I'm looking forward to when your adult novel comes out. And when your YA novel is finished, so... It'll be a few years, but (laughs) thank you. Thank you for that. Young adult author Martine Levitt talking about how she gets to know the characters in her books before writing about them. She was followed by Madeline Dresden sharing her experiences of writing a YA novel, an assignment when she took Martine's class. Here's what's next on World's Awaiting. Rachel welcomes author and educator Margaret Blair Young, who is deeply committed to helping our children better understand their world in a more global way. She also shares experiences of living in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Guatemala. Young's published works include the novels House Without Walls, Salvador, and Heresies of Nature. 
She also co-authored a trilogy of historical novels about Black Mormon pioneers called Standing on the Promises. Here's Rachel and Margaret Blair Young. We're in studio with Margaret today. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I am thrilled to have you here, particularly because we're going to talk about a context today that I think a lot of people need more understanding about. You've had a lot of experience with Africa and studying and looking at all of the people and the beauty and the glory. And I'm excited for you to share some of your insights with us today about, about literacy and about the things you've engaged in. So so what is one thing that you'd like to start out with that you think people should know about Africa? Well, for, first of all, the particular country in Africa that I specialize in is the Democratic Republic of Congo, which was once known as Zaire. So I am not an expert the entire continent. I've only been to three countries there, but I have a, a deep love for the Congo. Uh, my husband and I trained some young men who were going to be doing mission trips to the Congo. And because I was writing to them, I also wrote to the people they were working with and met a young man named Emi Mbuyi, uh, who had been very politically active, uh, had been in some sort of destructive groups. And had switched to that to a, a love of switched from that to a love of peace, and uh, it was in that context that I met him, and then I was able to go to the Congo for the big bride price ceremony, which is a pretty remarkable thing. In uh, we're making a movie called The Heart of Africa, and that's how I start off because I want people to get a sense of how fun, how exciting, how not what they think. You know, you you there's a YouTube of people from Africa talking about how they are generally perceived and it's guns, military. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen so many things. I've seen people from the Congo portrayed on television without French accents. And I thought, do you not know? <laughs> so even, you know, even good screenwriters don't don't often realize uh, we can just use the Congo as an example of uh, bad people. We, everybody knows women are, are terribly treated and, and that is an issue. Everybody knows there's a lot of violence there. But it's just not what people assume. This is so fascinating to me because I think not only does this help us to understand our global world in a better way, which is wonderful, but it also brings up a very interesting point in the fact that I think a lot of times we are uneducated and particularly our children, like we see a movie or we see a clip on the news and we assume that that's everything. So it's it's a really important part of our literacy, right, to be able to open our minds to kind of a broader context of what the world is about and all the people in it and helping our children do that, particularly as parents and concerned adults, is is a really important thing. So how would you go about maybe helping your children develop this kind of broader understanding of this beautiful, obviously beautiful country of the Congo? That well, I I've actually done that with my children, not in the Congo yet, uh, but in Guatemala, where I've taken them down several times, and we've taught at a school. And I remember after the first time, I thought, okay, these kids are going to have culture shock because I go native. When I'm in Guatemala, I, I go totally totally native. We don't have any luxuries, and. It was only one day of culture shock, and the day that we were ready to leave, my daughter said, wait, let me feel the love. Let me just feel the love one more time before we go. By that interaction with the the children that they had taught with, they loved 
Guatemala. It was the love of the people, regardless of what they had or did not have. Um, in the Congo, I, uh, I've been now twice. And the first time I got acquainted with people, the celebratory ways of the people in, in the Congo where, where I got to be a part of it and where they tried to show me their ways. And I, uh, I, I have a little grandbaby. She's three months old. And what I've noticed is she's starting to laugh. And it's not just – it's not just <laughs> – it's her whole body. But, you know, as things go on, children learn, oh, no, 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 we don't really do our whole bodies. It's we, we keep the laughter and you have to know which the right jokes are and, you know, yeah. all of these uh, where we learn how to even control the laughter. I have seen such laughter on the African continent. And I have to say in, Gu- in Guatemala as well, there were so many yeah. similarities. Uh, and that is one of the great gifts, the joy and also family. That's a huge thing that I learned. Yeah. I loved and I'm sorry that. Because my biggest experiences in in countries that are quite different from the USA are in Guatemala and in Congo that I, I do make comparisons, uh, the ability to laugh at themselves and the love of family. Uh, in, in Guatemala, families all lived quite close together and there wasn't a sense of – and then the children go away. Everybody was there. And in the Congo, uh, my godson, Emmy Mbuyu, explained to me, oh, I know that in America you talk about cousins and aunts and uncles. We don't really do that here. They're all, we're all brothers and sisters. There is so much to be said for the honor that the family receives there. I, I think this is so important because it helps us to just see the great beauty that surrounds us. And this sense of kind of global literacy about how do we learn about our global society. So – why do you think it's important, particularly for kids, to have these kinds of experiences, maybe in the country if they can, or maybe through well-made films or through children's literature or other things? Why do you think this kind of global literacy is so important, particularly for our American children today? The ability to dream. Uh, I, I was I was rocking my little grandbaby yesterday, and her name is Olive, and I had a book called Olive, The Other Reindeer. One of my favorites. <laughs> We've talked about that on the show before. <laughs> and I, I was reading it to her, and my daughter said, well, you know, she doesn't get anything yet. I said, oh, she's getting it. You just – she hasn't put it into context yet. But she will have this memory of her grandma sitting with her and holding something. And sometimes what she sees changes as the page changes. And then eventually she gets a sense of, oh, this is when I sit on grandma's lap and we hold something called a book. And the pictures change. And then eventually I know this story. Sometimes there will be some repetition and they'll chant right along with it. Um, I grew up, I am now 61 years old, which is a lovely age. I, I actually really enjoy it. But because I was born in 1955, I grew up on C. Jane, C. Jane Run. Uh, and Dr. Seuss was just about to come on the scene and did when I was still a child. He went to the children's imaginations and did the what if. What if there were a cat that came in to visit you while your mom was away and the cat had a hat and had a thing one and thing two, and this is what happened. Yeah. And then the whole adventure plays out. And, of course, Dr. Seuss goes on on to write all sorts of things about Bartholomew's hats. You get the idea that Dr. Seuss could just look at something and a story would appear. Yeah. Well, that's really what we're talking about. And, and it becomes significant for – certainly for American children uh, where we are so – 
technology bound, where we have reduced our communication to very short texts in, in a lot of ways. And as an English teacher, I see some of the results of this because I get handwritten papers and I say, oh, it looks like you didn't learn any punctuation because the computers take care of all of that. Um, it, it's a much deeper and more serious thing in places where there are not books. The Congo, sadly, is a place with very few books. And that's something, you know, I've thought, all right, what can I actually do? In my vision, I go with, you know, a million people and we just do everything we can with the Congolese because, of course, the goal always has to be that you make yourself irrelevant. They do everything that needs to be done. And I thought, well, that's too much. You're going to have to pare it down. And then I've gone to, we can certainly provide books. Yeah. I can take 500 books, small books, on a computer. And then we can teach others how to make books. And we can get their stories. We can go into the villages, get their stories, teach the kids how to make them into books. We're not going to get Kindles for everybody right now. That's not an immediate option. But we can get books. And that is just a perfect note to end on because I think it really is about that imagination and opening ourselves to possibilities because that is what opens empathy and it opens love. And, you know, that imagination is that starting. So thank you so much, Margaret, for your time today and opening up a new world for us and helping us to see our world in a much broader context. Thank you. Author and educator Margaret Blair Young, talking about the importance for our children of understanding other peoples and cultures. We finish up the show with a book review from Anne-Marie Marchant, Adult and Teen Services Librarian at the Provo City Library in Utah. Marchant introduces a young adult novel entitled Wanderlost by Jen Malone. So Aubrey is the main character. She can't think of anything better than being at her house in perfectly boring Ohio. She is not at all, you know, a risk taker. She's not looking for adventure. She just wants to be at home. And so she's ready for a, re a relaxing summer. But she has an older sister named Elizabeth who's very um, motivated and has always been the best of the best at everything. Her older sister Elizabeth gets in trouble for really the first time in her life. Um, trying to help Aubrey with the situation that she's in. And Aubrey and Elizabeth concoct a plan for Aubrey to um, take over Elizabeth's summer job and pretend to be Elizabeth. And her summer job is leading a group of senior citizens on a bus tour through Europe. Well, she gets to the airport with her carefully constructed binder of everything that Elizabeth's put together for her to, to know on this um, trip. But she doesn't even make it to her first stop in Amsterdam before the perfect plan unravels. She loses the binder and her cell phone, so now she's sort of on her own trying to figure out how she's going to be Elizabeth so that Elizabeth will hopefully get a job at the end of the summer based on this internship. She also um, faces another challenge when she receives a surprise guest on the tour um, when the tour owner's son, Sam, who's around her age, comes to help out. So then, of course, there's a little bit of a love story going on. She's trying to figure out how she's going to keep pretending to be Elizabeth and yet deal with this new relationship that's forming and how her relationship with Elizabeth will change over the course of the summer as well. So Aubrey knows that this trip may show her who she really is, but she just hopes that she likes who that person is at the end of the summer. 
So this was a fun, light summer read. It made me wish that I was going to go travel Europe soon. <laughs> um, I fell in love with the descriptions of each new city that they visited, as well as the really unique personalities of each of the guests on the senior citizen bus tour, because there's a lot of really fun characters going on there. I'd recommend this book to anyone who's read books by authors like Stephanie Perkins, Jennifer E. Smith, and then uh, Jenna, Jenna Evans-Welch, uh, has a new book out this summer that I also just listened to called Love and Gelato. Again, a very European feel, and I so wanted gelato after reading that book. Anne-Marie Marchant, Adult and Teen Services Librarian at the Provo City Library, reviewing Wanderlost by Jen Malone. We'll look forward to more Young Reader book reviews from other librarians and booksellers in the future. For a full collection of book reviews... Check out the World's Awaiting Book Reviews link on our website at byuradio.org. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org. <laughs>